Hello, Namaste. I'm Ruchira Gupta, your host for the podcast A Free Voice. I'm an Emmy-winning journalist who went on to start Apnea, an NGO which works against sex trafficking. I have dedicated my life to amplifying voices of the most marginalized people in the world. I'm also the debut author of scholastic book I Kick and I Fly. In this podcast, I will talk to survivors, activists, and storytellers who use their voice to make a difference in the lives of young people. How does an idea turn into action? How do you change a tragedy into recognizing your own powers? Together, we will examine and reimagine the world we want. I wake up and instinctively reach for my phone, hoping, hoping that Leo has texted. And there is still nothing. I check to see if the Wi-Fi is working, and then I see that the little airplane right next to the Wi-Fi bars is active. I'm in airplane mode? How did I do that? When did I do that? I don't drink, so I can't blame it on alcohol. I was stoned, but I get loopy when I smoke weed, not self-sabotage I switch my phone back to send me all the text mode, and then, in a blink, there they are, stacked green bubbles filled with Leo Burke. Where you at? Are you here? Adira says you are here? Question mark. Where you at? Did I do something? Today was epic. I like being in another town with you. Wait, Ravi says you're in Atlantique. Where? Can I come meet you? You know what? You're probably not getting these. I'm going to DM you. Still nothing. Jasmine? Jasmine. I missed you tonight. I missed you tonight. Good night, Jasmine. That was Marcel Karp reading from her latest book, Getting Over Max Cooper. Marcel is a producer. She's also a broadcast, broadcast artist, and she is the founder of a magazine called Bust, iconic in the feminist movement. Uh, her mixing feminism with sexuality was pioneering, and she wrote under the name of Betty Boob, which many of you will know. So, Marcel, my first question to you is why Betty Boob? <laughs> Sorry. Um, thank you. I was the co-founder. I did it with another person, uh, like-minded feminist. So uh, when we started Bust, we were asking for submissions for pe from people, and we were asking people to be uh, as truthful as they possibly be could be in their writing. At the time, 1993, 92, around that time, we launched in 93, but up, we were working on it a little bit in 92. Um, we, Cosmopolitan was, all, you know, and Glamour and like all these mainstream women's magazines. And a lot of the, the writing was surface and in service to men and uh, a kind of relishing in beauty and all these kind of paradigms that uh, supported the male gaze. And the one magazine that really spoke from an honest place was Sassy, which was targeted towards teens, really. That was their demo. However, like we know, even with YA novels, even though that's the demo, those aren't the only people reading that kind of writing you know so adults we were in our 20s we were reading sassy and we were so inspired by sassy and so when we asked our we when we told our friends that we were creating the zine a, a diy project uh, uh called bust and that we wanted people to write about the day in their in, the, in their lives you know some of the people were like i want to write about my job but i don't want to write i don't want to put my name on it and so we said okay so pick a pseudonym you know and then uh, we decided to pick pseudonyms too. And um, when I was a kid, my mother just really enjoyed Betty Boop, <laughs> the the animated um, woman with like the big head and this like, you know, kind of distorted body and a bodice. And she was sort of a, a sexualized <laughs> animated uh, character, but appealed to children in some way. I'm not sure. And I... I thought, oh, it'd be super funny if I'm doing a zine called Bust and I kind of reclaim and also repurpose this sort of influential character in my mother's life. And so I just changed the P to a B and called myself Betty Boob. <laughs> How fascinating. <laughs> and was it, was it hard to bust so many glass ceilings with Bust? 
You know, that's a great question. It was, you know, at the time in 1993, you have to also think about like the cultural climate. You know, there was a, a war on women. Anita Hill was the, those hearings were happening. Clinton was in charge. And then, you know, we know what happened with him. And uh, Melissa Etheridge had come out and, you know, there was at the and Clinton's inaugura inauguration was the first like LGBTQ celebration called the Triangle Ball. So there was a lot of like these flourishes happening in, in, in culture, not just pop culture, but in culture. Uh, Nirvana, Riot Girl, queer core bands, all of this sort of uh, angst and uh, activation, politicized activation happening. So we came out at a time where zines were really in the zeitgeist of alternative culture. You know, obviously we know with Riot Girl um, how they spoke to each other, how they spoke to the community on both coasts. So when we did Bust, we were not the only feminist zine in in the world. Like we were part of a movement, and so it was very exciting to you know bitch. Uh, us all, of course, like I keep saying, right, girl zines, like all of those zines. There were other zines like um, uh, Fat Girl, oh, Fat Di Fat Girl, and Venus in, Fur in Venus in Furs, and um, Girl Jock. Like there were all these sort of uh, they weren't sort of they were these feminist zines with a very distinct point of view, doing incredible things, speaking to their specific likeness. You know, so I was a a feminist in my 20s with a lot of anger and I when I wrote I wrote from my personal experience and so we were when of course when I look back at it I realize how influential we were and how what we were doing but at the moment we weren't thinking about that we weren't thinking oh we're feeling a filling a white space we weren't thinking about branding we were just like we have something to say we have a means to do it. We can DIY it and we can just distribute it and speak to women our age. You know, the idea of DIY is so fascinating to me because obviously you don't know if you're going to make money from it. You don't know how you're going to sustain it. You don't, don't even know how you're going to sustain yourself because you have to put in time to do DIY and especially a magazine. So how were you able to do it? I think our listeners would love to know. How do you do a DIY magazine? Well, you know, there's a couple of things that you touch upon. You know, economics, like the economic factor of it was always present, but we were also very early in our own careers. Like, I think, you know, I lived in an apartment with roommates and then I lived in an apartment by myself. And I think I was making... $300 a week after taxes, you know. So economics was always in my head because I was trying to figure out how to pay rent and become somebody that could sustain herself. And the really beautiful thing about the way I was doing Bust was that it was all, there was no out of, no true out-of-pocket cost. Uh, you know, we... <laughs> We would sneak into an office and 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 photocopy these zines on somebody else's dime. Uh, I was working at a company at the time, and I used the mailroom to ship the copies of Bust Out. I mean, when we were super resourceful about about distributing and creating the zine, obviously we didn't pay anybody, we didn't pay ourselves because, like economics in that context, wasn't really the driver. The driver was, let's speak to as many women as possible. And then I think around the fourth, maybe between the third and fourth issue, uh, a woman who did a zine uh, in like Albany or upstate New York reached out to me. Her name was, her name is, I hope she's alive, Lucy Gwynn. And she was doing a zine uh, very specific to um disabled uh demographic like you know she was like i i live in a wheelchair and this is my life and i'm you know and very empowering and she reached out and she said you know you can make ten dollars a pop if you just put a subscription page at the top in the front of the book and people will just send you money and then you can use that money to like graduate from being photocopied to being printed and we were like what 
it. You know, so every step of the way as we were making Bust, we would, because the zine community is so super supportive, particularly at that time, everybody's giving you like tips on how to become successful in different ways. Uh, and so we learned how to get ads and ads generate income. We learned how to do like one sheets that had ad prices because that could generate not income, but um, it, it would generate money to help us support the zine. Uh, and we never pocketed a single cent. Every cent we made from subscriptions to ad um, advertising to even distribution, like uh, revenue, if there was any, because, you know, you would sell your zine for a dollar and the distributor would take 50 cents and give you 50 cents or something like that. And uh, every single cent went back into the bust. So every time we made $500 or $1,000, we would then look at the next um, issue and go, can we print it out? Can we print it on actual paper? Can we put color into it? Can we print it on glossy paper? And with each issue, the answers were always yes, because we kept uh, learning and growing in infinite ways. Uh, it wasn't just, oh, we have this idea. It was always like, oh, <laughs> there's, there's this comes with running a business and a cost comes with running a business. And oh, by the way, you are running a business. It's not just like this cool thing that you're doing on the side. This is like a real defiant thing. And you all were in your 20s with other jobs. Yeah, I was working at the time at HBO as a promo producer. I had just come back. I had, when we started Bust, I had been living in Paris. Um, I had sort of had enough of New York and had been working for sort of these male sports establishments and just being hit on all the time and just disgusted. <laughs> like I was trying to be a producer and men were walking into my edit room going, hey, you want to get some coffee? And you'd be like, yo, dude, I'm working. Like, what are you talking about? So I went to Paris and I just, I just zoned out. And when I came back, I was like, uh, I think it's time for me to do something different. Obviously, I go back to producing because that's how I know how to make money. But bust became like the thing that I really wanted to be doing. And um, I went to HBO. I think, I, yeah, I think I went to HBO and had an office there. So it became very easy for me to like in my downtime just be thinking about bust. And then I had another job uh, at Lifetime Television that became a staff job. And then it became very easy for me to like in my downtime think about what I was doing with bus, like make calls to people, use the mail room, you know, just kinds of stuff like that. So I was just constantly like, I had a proper job during the day. And then at night I was very focused on um, bust, uh, going to see bands, women play, uh, going to see films directed and produced by women and, you know, all this kind of thing. And also again, like in the 90s in New York, culture was just popping. You know, you could walk on Avenue A and there'd be one club after another with music coming out the doors because the bands were playing. It was, so, it was such a prolific time for artists. And did you distribute your uh, zine in uh, bookstores or did you distribute it where bands played and poetry cafes? Uh, yes, to all of that. Uh, there was a zine called Fact Sheet 5 and they, the publisher of it, uh, this fellow named Seth Friedman uh, also published a resource guide. So in the resource guide, it was all the mom and pop shops that would carry bus, but also main mainstream chains like Barnes and Noble to Tower Records, which at the time was like the Barnes and Noble of record stores. <laughs> um, and he also in the resource guide, there were distributors, like who could carry your zine and sell it to the mom and pop shops, like Big Top Publishing. Uh, so I used that literally as my daily Bible. Like, okay, did I did I call this place? Did I call that place? Uh, and, also, and no one had email yet. So you would call everybody and you'd get hung up on or somebody would be like, I, your thing sounds interesting. Because also there was no way to like, take a photo of it and text it. You know, you'd have to send one copy and then they would have to determine whether they thought they could carry it or if they had, there was a market for it. And, you know, when 
the first time I went to a, a Barnes & Noble or Tower Records and I saw Bust there, it was just like mind-blowing. Obviously, I took it from the back shelf and put it in the front so that people <laughs> could see it. But um, yeah, it it was it's throughout the 90s when I was doing Bust, it was always very exciting to see it uh, in the shelf somewhere. Of course, yeah. And uh, how how long did you keep it going? How many copies did you distribute? What was its impact? Uh, thank you for those questions. Those are good. Um, I I co-founded Best in 1993. I personally left in 2001. Throughout those seven years, uh, we were trying to do it quarterly. Um, I think that was all we had the bandwidth for uh, just just like psychologically, like also like too, as, as you're putting magazines together and as you start to evolve, particularly towards the end of my tenure at Bust, when the people on the cover were famous people, you know, because as we know that um, if you see somebody that you connect with that's sort of famous, you're more inclined to pick something up that you know nothing about. And so like, we never assumed that Bust was a, uh, had trademark value like the Nike logo like you'd see Nike logo and you know exactly what that means just do it you know all these things but we never assumed that like bust had that tra kind of trademark value to it so we particularly once we started putting famous people on the cover that became literally the only thing that we would do like just let's look for someone on, that we could put on the cover that people will will gravitate towards so we had you know like Missy Elliott and V York and Gloria and Natasha and a lot of these people, particularly in those years that we put on the cover, Margaret Cho, Janine, I'm trying to go in order uh, in my head, <laughs> Magnus said, um, a lot of these people we knew personally and we had a way to reach out to them and put them on the cover. And uh, that was always super stressful because like, Asking someone to be on the cover of your zine when you've just been hanging out with them, like you're crossing a line, you know, you're crossing like a really big line because like, wait, you just want to hang out with me because you want me to put me on the cover of your dumb zine. Um, that was definitely very stressful. Uh, wait, of course not. I've forgotten what you asked me, but anyway, so. <laughs> but it's interesting. Everything that you're saying, it's part of our feminist history. It's part of rage history, Right that you're angry and you turn it into something creative and you find a group of friends to do it and you find a way to sustain it without grants. You did it as a labor of love in your evenings, at night. And there's something very beautiful about it and makes it part of our movement as feminists. Uh, how many copies did you print? Uh, so the first issue, uh, the one that was photocopied and uh, stapled, hand-stapled by us, that was called, we had a theme because I, of course at the beginning we had themes. Uh, I come from a, a branding background, Nickelodeon. And when, when, when we were working at, when I was working at Nickelodeon, again, this is my branding background, you always had to wrap your idea in, in, an, in, in another idea or a theme. And so like when we were doing Bust, that was very much like present in my head. So our first issue was a day in the life. It was Xerox and sorry, photocopied and stapled. And we print, we charged a dollar and we, we cop, we made a thousand copies that I know of. Of course, over the years, like we just probably been more, but I distributed about a, a thousand copies. And, and that was incredible because every, every place we sent it to was sold out. Like, it, you know, in, in no time, in July of 1993. And then our second issue was like the fun issue. And we had graduated because we had made just like a little money from distribution. We were able to, I think we, $2,000 maybe. And we put that towards printer and we did a two-color printer. Um, we, we found a printer that could do two-color and put it on a newsprint paper. And we, I think we created 3,000 copies, sold all of those out. I think in my personal collection, I only have like three of those copies left and the pages are yellowing. Yes. So of course I've scanned everything, all of that, all of it got sold out. And then, and like, as we continued to create Bust, um, we would 
graduate to better quality paper, more color, glossy, this kind of thing. And each issue would sell out. Wonderful. And what did bust bust? What did we bust? We bust, we busted um, stereotypes of women, uh, good girl, all the good girl paradigm that, you know, of course we know still is still uh, prevalent to this day. Um, we were very, we were part of third wave, their third wave kind of feminism. Oh yeah. Sorry. We were part of third wave feminism, which was the, the anchor of the nineties feminist movement. It came on the, it came in, in on the, on the heels or past second wave feminism. Uh, it was more intersectional. It was, uh, more embracing of feminine feminine stereotypes uh, at the same time reclaiming those kinds of things so bust we were very much like you you know all work is important work housework is important uh working outside the home raising kids all of this stuff is important not that second wave didn't think that but we were very much like i'm gonna wear lipstick and i'm gonna enjoy it uh, I want to like sit in my apartment and knit and I'm going to enjoy it. We very much like find the pleasure in the little things, like don't deny that. And that was very much our ethos. And I think we were very influential in that. And, and it was, a it was something that was important to us because we were still learning too. Like when you're in your twenties, you're still learning about, how to get an orgasm for yourself and in, or with a partner, hopefully with a partner, uh, you're still learning this stuff because you're still learning about your body. You're still learning like what looks good and what, what it means to look good. And are you owning that for yourself? You're still working. If you have body dysmorphia, which I totally did, you're still learning how to grapple with it and work through it. And bust was like, for particularly for me, a great avenue to uh, put to document this whole journey of mine. And it, and, and the reality is I represented my generation. I'm Gen X. Like we were all going through this shit at the same time. I know. And we take it so much for granted, the idea of the orgasm. And uh, I remember talking to my grandmother about it and explaining. And she's, she'd never had an orgasm in her life. And she said, Ruchi, what's an orgasm? <laughs> so. Imagine that conversation between my grandmother and I. But it was a beautiful conversation because of third wave feminism. I was able to have it completely confident, completely open, no shame, no fear, no guilt. And, uh, you know, that makes me think like when you were in your 20s, bringing out Bust, working for Nickelodeon, HBO, you were imagining a future. What was what did you think the world would be like, the ideal world that you were creating in that moment? That's a, that's a great question. I always think about Betty Dotson, who was very much about um, self-pleasure. She's a second-wave feminist. And I didn't know what a vibrator was until I started doing bust. I really didn't, even though Betty Dotson was like waving it around for, for decades. She's an example of what the future looked like to me in my 20s, like somebody that takes, that has agency not just of her sexuality, although of course that's very important, but her whole life, you know, uh, when Betty Dotson, when we, when I, I think I interviewed Betty Dotson in the nineties, her hair was blue. Like she was a badass. Like to me, she represented what's possible. Um, so that's the future. The future is like what's possible and what should be and could be, you know, we rallied, I'm sorry, we marched in the, in the Prochos rally in the early nineties. I mean, my daughter just did that. So, you know, you realize like what's possible is this ongoing battle. Even in my 20s when I was doing bust, I realized I knew that everything I was agitating for, not all of it could come true. Uh, but that I, at that moment, but I, or that it could be a lifelong battle, that I could be <laughs> in a fight for the whole of my life and that I would pass that fighting uh, power over to my daughter and then she would continue, she would pass it on to her daughter. It's very hard. It's also, it's so hard to be sitting here now and to be so disillusioned, but 
I try not to get mired in that. I try to just go, okay, change is always possible. I've seen change. I mean, I just watched what happened with Roe versus Wade. That's still change, not change to, to our benefit, but that's still change. Change is always possible. So to me, what I imagined and what I continue to imagine is always this thing wrapped in possibility. Yeah, and you went on to do a stand-up comedy or produce a stand-up comedy with your daughter. Hello, Giggles. So you actually went intergenerational in your activism. And what was that like? Did you have quarrels about <laughs> understanding, approaches, even ideas? So it's so funny because um, my daughter and I talk this about, about this all the time. My daughter, who is a, a badass feminist, her name is Ruby Carp. She, she was a musical theater buff, like probably in utero. Like I tried to play her Sonic Youth, didn't matter. But if I walked by Broadway, she the the baby would be moving. Like she just came out the came out going musical theater is the best. <laughs> so and I do not like musical theater. I have no pre even though I'm going to a show uh, in the near future. I had no interest in it whatsoever. So she would go see these Broadway shows with my friends, but I would take her to my church, which was the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater, the UCB, which is an improv theater started by these four iconic improvisers, Amy Poehler, Matt Besser, Matt Walsh, and Ian Roberts. And we would go every Sunday night and watch improv, and she would laugh, and she loved it so much. And sometimes she would go on stage um, and perform with these like heroes of ours. When she was like 10 or 11, Hello Giggles launched and they asked her to write for them. And they had found her because she had done this thing called with Amy Poehler, uh, Smart Girls at the Party, where she talked about being a feminist and, you know, a seven-year-old talking about being a <laughs> feminist. So uh, I was in LA uh, for a shoot and Hello Giggles were doing a storytelling show and, and Ruby uh, asked if she could tell a story, and so she did. And and uh, they, she killed. And killed means it makes everybody laugh uh, at UCB. And uh, they just were like, she just she had the whole room laughing. And so they said, would you mind? Would you be interested in doing uh, a Hello Giggle show in New York? Because UCB had a New York theater. And I said, oh well, I'll pitch it to them and see what they think. And they they of course they said yes. Well, not of course. I mean, I did have to pitch it. I had to do like a proper thing, but they did say yes. And um, the the rub of it is that I had to produce it. And I was like, wait, what? I've avoided like musical theater and being a stage mom. And now I'm going to be an actual stage mom by producing a show that my kid is like hosting, like ugh, the, ugh, the irony. Um, and so from the time she was 12 to the time she was 18, I produced, um, it started as a storytelling show, but it wasn't, it, it, people weren't coming to it because like, you know, in order to produce a show, you have to have these draws, kind of like back mm -hmm. to the idea of um, putting a famous person on the cover of a magazine. Um, you have to have people that people want to come here, talk or speak or tell jokes. So we migrated over into a stand-up show. So Ruby had to learn how to tell jokes as opposed to telling stories. Um, and, you know, so from, from 2012 to 2018, we did this stand-up show called We Hope You Have Fun that she hosted, I produced. And, you know, anyone that you could possibly think of that's well-known, Bowen Yang and Matt Rogers and Pat Regan and Wyatt Cenac and the women from Broad City and A.D. Bryant, all these beautiful, oh, Michelle Butow, Phoebe Robinson, all these beautiful, hilarious stand-up comics, Nicole Byer. Like they, they did our show um, and Ruby became a stand-up as a result of that. She still <laughs> likes musical theater, but now she also likes that. So that's cool. It's wonderful. And you, of course, continue to communicate with the next generation of people in their 20s, in their teens. And your latest book, Getting Over Max Cooper, is for young adults. Why did you choose young adults as your medium for your first fiction book? That's another great question, Richard. You're so good with that. <laughs> um, so I have always been a writer. 
I've always liked writing books. And when my daughter was younger, I raised my daughter by myself. So, you know, the person who would read her books at night would be me. And there came like a moment in her childhood where I realized like some of these books are just not pro-girl. Like they're just not. Who are these girls? And the, I don't know. I loved Olivia the pig. But then after that, I was like, where are the girls? Captain Underpants was like the big hero when she was like in elementary school. So I started writing little stories for her that I could tell her. And some of those stories, particularly once she would go to sleep, became books, like little YA books. So I wrote my first YA book when she was 10. It was like a fantasy book. Um, it didn't sell. But uh, the woman, one of the women who rejected that book was the woman who bought Getting Over Max Cooper 10 years later. So which the is moral hilarious. is never end a relationship. <laughs> Keep it going because everybody is a friend. Everybody. Every, it, like the wonderful, the thing I tell everybody, like the people I mentor, the people who work with me and for me, don't burn bridges. Just be nice to everybody. Everybody has asshole in them and there's a lot of stupid in working spaces but you just always have to have a smile on your face and be nice. I did not know that in my 20s. I burned a lot of bridges. But I, if I give anything to people now, I'm just like, don't burn bridges. Be nice to everybody. Don't be snarky in email. Don't be snarky. Do not argue in text. That is just the, the that will burn a bridge. Um, but anyway, so uh, when I wrote that book, I, I loved that manuscript so much. I just kept writing books. Um, I didn't, I I didn't not write adult books. I have written an adult book uh, that my agent is like kind of playing with now, trying to put together. Um, but I, I really honed in on YA. Also, I just love YA so much. I love it. Uh, Hunger Games came out when my daughter was like around 10. And, and then, of course, Twilight, like all these really huge books, but also small books that like aren't ubiquitous. Um, and I, when my daughter was younger, we would spend our summers in this uh, place called Fire Island, which is like the sandbar over the, uh, off the coast of Long Island. And it's a community, it's a, it has 17 distinct communities. So 17 distinct uh, cultures exist there. And the town that I went to was a barefoot town. There are no cars in Fire Island. There's no com com like real like commerce, like Starbucks or sorry, franchise commerce there. It's these little isolated communities that are, are these their own ecosystems. There's the community that I went to, there was just like one, one fire department, one ice cream store, one supermarket, one pizza store, one restaurant. And at, as a mom, I would just like sit on these benches watching kids have total autonomy because the only way you can get anywhere is on a bike or with your legs. Obviously you can walk. Um, and I would watch these teenagers ride around on their bicycles free, free of harassment, you know, in bikinis with their hair just blowing in the wind. And I would think like, how awesome that you could just be free here and not worry about being catcalled. Uh, or the male gaze, but in... The, or, or even being hit by a car. Hit by a car. Um, obviously, people would look at people in, in swimsuits, but it, it, there was this sort of freedom of sexual harassment. And when you are free of sexual has, harassment as a woman, you know, that's, that's a freedom that we don't have when we're walking in the city. Um, you know, because I live in the city, so I'm going to just talk about the city. Like, I don't have that freedom here. Even our age, like, I don't have that freedom here. I'm always looking over my shoulder. You don't have that in Fire Island. You, you know, you could ride your bikes at 11 at night and just feel free. Um, and so I start to imagine what would it be like to be, like, 16 and just have that level of freedom. And when you're 16 and you have freedom, you have a lot of power. And... Uh, you don't yet know how to wield it or control it. And, and a lot of that is a thread in this book. Like, what do you do with that kind of freedom? Um, what do you do with uh, relationships? What, what is like, what's at stake in friendships? You don't know yet. Even in our, even in your fifties, you don't know what to do with friendships um, sometimes. Uh, yeah. So that's kind of like where it all started to just sort of formulate. What does freedom look like to you? Freedom, freedom looks like 
being able to be your true self without hiding from the world. Um, that's what it looks like for me. Hmm. Because I've always wondered, how do you even know your true self? In, um, in, I'm an atheist, but in Hindu religion, uh, there's a book called the Bhagavad Gita in which the first principle is know thyself. And it's there in possibly every religion, you know, in the Bible or in Buddhism or other religions too, that you have to know yourself. But the, over the years, that's what I've realized is the hardest thing to do is to know yourself. I still don't know who I am fully. I might know some external parts, uh, you know, that I have black hair and brown eyes and brown skin and this is my weight and this is my height and I like to write and I like to uh, talk to friends or protest any kind of injustice or oppression. I'm a feminist. But literally, you know, when I try to unpack the layers and go deeper, it's harder and harder. So what is it when you're writing a book for young adults and you mention in Getting Over Max Cooper that... Um, you know, it's an exploration, the freedom to explore and, you know, young people trying to figure out how to use that uh, freedom to explore with their bodies, in their relationships, etc. So how do you how do you navigate that for young people in this book? Well, you have to part of, I think, writing YA is tapping into who you are as a person, but who you were at 16 and I always talk about the inner girl. You know, the inner girl exists with me at all times. Like I look in the mirror and I'm like, sometimes I don't recognize the face because that's not the face that's always with me, you know? Um, in some some cultures, it's like a spirit face or, you know, navigating that really requires a memory or uh, like a, a moment or an experience. Obviously, like there's some experiences in here that are not mine, but there are many experiences in every in each of these characters that are mine. And so, you know, I write from that place. Like there's there it's an, there are four main characters, but there's a lot of uh, support characters in this book, and each one of them has a little bit of me. So I just like I put that into these into this story into these characters. I've had best friends. I've had best friends who have left me, and I've had best friends who I've left. I've had best friends who have been you know, terribly smitten with someone, uh, and I've had best friends who have not been uh, very honorable to those people. I've also been all of those people. <laughs> yeah, true. And so that's that's what I bring to that. You know, I bring... I bring my knowledge and my own experiences into these things. And again, at the same time, because my daughter went through this book with a fine tooth comb, there's nobody. And how old is your daughter now? Now she's 22, but there's nobody in this book that is based on anybody real. These are all imagined characters in my head. I was telling somebody that like at some point when I was writing this, the book started telling me telling me where to go with it like I it just sort of like wrote itself it's which sounds so like me but you know when you start to build these worlds the characters choices become apparent to you mm -hmm. they tell you where they're going to go with it um yeah so that's kind of like how I get so there. there's no ruby carp in the book and there's no marcel carp in the book but there are feelings and emotions and maybe some experiences which are sort of into the book yeah, like there's a mom, a single mom who raised a kid by herself and who had a daughter who's the main, who's the, the narrator of the book. You could say that's me and my kid, but it's not. That's not our relationship. Uh, and not even this, not at all. Because also, like I said, she went through this and she was like, to the even to the extent of like, I tried to use somebody, a name. And she's like, you can't use that name. There's a, somebody called that. In, in the town and I don't want, you know, so you'd be like, even down to a name, I had to just like rewrite stuff. Um, yeah. Where can people get the book? Ooh. So uh, this book, you can get it in every major uh, bookseller, more online than in the brick and mortar uh, shops. Uh, the Amazon, the Barnes and Nobles, the Powell Books. Um, if you have a local bookstore that is not carrying it, you could ask them to to order it, and they will. And what about the zines, the bust? Is it on your website? 
So I left Bust in 2001, and I have had nothing to do with it um, since I left. I, I've no, not even looked at an issue. Like every so often, somebody who's on the cover will be like, I'm on the cover of Bust. And I'll be like so happy for them, but I won't. I haven't looked at it. Um, a lot of it is because it doesn't speak to me anymore. My my issues are now yeah, the you've issues. Yeah, you moved on. You know, what's uh, menopause, IRAs, 401k. I'm interested in those things now. Not um, uh, like, I, you know, not the things that are somebody that might be reading that. Um, yeah. You recently wrote an article about uh, in the workplace for the elderly at in Huffington Post. Yeah, the Huffington that was interesting. And was that based on your own experiences? Yes. I wrote about um, when I was 51, I got laid off from my job and how it took me six years to find a staff job. In those six years, I freelanced quite a bit. Uh, but there was one whole year I didn't get have any income whatsoever. Um, and I wrote about like from a tactical perspective, like those points that I just mentioned, but also like the the bigger implication of that is what happens to people, women in particular, because I'm speaking as a woman, in their 50s in the corporate space, in the working space. Uh, we are, there's no space for us. <laughs> so that's the, that's the point. Uh, and that comes down to ageism, sexism, racism, um, you know, sometimes you'll hear these companies talk about DE&I, uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Uh, and a lot of what they're doing is really wonderful work because they're trying to make sure that spaces are not all vanilla. I mean, I interviewed at so many companies and at so many companies, I would not see a brown face, a black face, an Asian face, nothing. It's just white, 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 white. I uh, once before the pandemic was interviewing at a very huge company and the, the the creative director, he was so proud of his team and he walked me around the three floors. And at one point, and this is where I didn't get the job, I said, I don't see any, I don't see any black people here. I don't see any brown people here. I don't see any Asian people here. Why is so many white people? And he's like, no, it's a diverse culture. And I was like, I don't, I know you're from Brazil, but, that is not the same thing. That's not the same thing. I didn't get the job, obviously. I, I was overwhelmed, but how, but how, by how racist so many of these companies were, how blind they were. Um, so I was dealing with that. I was dealing with ageism. So back to ageism, you, you know, I would interview with these places and it would be hiring manager and team. So you, didn't, you don't just interview these days with just one person. You interview with like a team of people because uh, they want to give every team member agency over who becomes part of their team. And, you know, you would, I would meet with people and just be a white person, every so often a person of color. But then the, another trend I'd start to notice, nobody was over 40 God forbid, over 50. I think I met with just one company where there was anybody in their 50s. And uh, it was really demoralizing because, like you, I'm vibrant, I'm vital, I'm capable, I'm so much to offer. And yet none of these companies, I, hundreds of companies I interviewed with at, uh, no space for me, no room for me until I met a very like open-minded person who brought me, who had me meet with the rest of the team. And now I have a staff job and I'm very proud of it. But You're at Spotify now. What? You're at Spotify. No, no, I'm at SiriusXM Pandora. Pandora, and, and right. And that is a culture that um, where you are accountable uh, for who you are and you're celebrated for the work that you do. And D-E-N-I is very much a practice there. My team is diverse from all aspects. And they were kind of one of the first teams that I met with where it wasn't just a bunch of like 40 year old white guys with, you know, it's just, it was where it really, really reflected a culture that I aspire to, that I had when I had my staff job, that I had in one of my freelance communities. Um, yeah, it was incredible. So that was what the article was about. It was my journey and about uh, ageism and about how companies can really mitigate this this 
by certain by doing certain practices by implementing DEI departments, but also making sure that the hiring managers are bringing in people that don't just look like them if they're white, and that they don't just uh, you know are, are only a certain age. You know, you've been a lifelong feminist activist, and you've always given back, come what may, as a mother, as a producer, as a writer, editor, you know, corporate employee. Anything that you do is touched by feminism and your commitment to equality, justice, dignity uh, in every possible way. Some of it is for money, some is without money, but you are unstoppable. Thank you. And that is interesting to me that you, you know, you never give up. Why is that? Like, why not just forget about trying to do something again and again, and then it feels as if it's full circle and we are facing the same problems again. Like you fight for the right to abortion, and then we have now another struggle to fight for the same thing. So what, what keeps you going? I just want to say, you are so inspirational, and it's so hard for me to not say back at you. You do the same thing um, <laughs> because you are a legend. Uh, so, but thank you. Um, you know, I just believe every day when I wake up, I am just happy, and I feel inspired by whatever is in my head at that moment. You know, I and also like a lot of my days are very mechanical. I wake up. Uh, like the rest of us, brush my teeth, hopefully. Uh, and then I walk my dog. And then I look after my daughter. Uh, and then I figure out the business of the day. And then, you know, a lunch and then a dinner. You know, it's, so, my, so my days are very mechanical. But when I, but the other part of my day is that it's always filled with hope. And it's always filled with a, an internal sunshine. And if there's ever a moment where that internal sunshine gets eclipsed, then it's over for me. So it's always it's always on the sunshine side. I believe very strongly uh, that I I've been put here to help women and to support women. I mentor women, uh, you know, uh, unlock her potential. But even before that, I've always been part of mentoring programs. And unlock her potential is what I'm the program I'm involved with now. But even before that, I've always been involved in mentoring programs, obviously BUST, which is like, you know, the cornerstone of my activism, like the work that I did there, I'm so proud of because I can see now, although of course I didn't know that then, that it has generational impact, you know, like that you have a, you have a kid who's in college and comes home and goes, guess what we had to talk about today? And you're like, oh, what is that darling daughter? And she'll be like, we talked about bust mom, you know, and it's <laughs> hilarious. You know, she's saying it in a very funny way, but like, you're like, holy shit. Like my work is being the work that I did is still alive. This, yeah. And it's crazy. And now I'm in grad school doing a, a master's program in winter and sorry, women and gender studies with the intent and, and learning, not teaching, which shows how beautiful and open a person you are. Thank you. Um, I'm learning. And, you know, because I always have, I had so many questions for you when I was doing um, my paper on stand-up comedy in India, the women who are doing uh, stand-up comedy there, um, because my focus is um, the space, the queer space of stand-up. Um, I'm in school learning because I also understand that I'm just always a student. What actually drew, you said something uh, which was intriguing, that you knew you were born to uh, be a feminist, fight for women's causes and women's rights. When did you know that? You know, I grew up in Queens, um, and my father was a New York City taxi driver, checker cab. My mother was a cashier. So very modest, uh, modest kind of living situation and parents who are who are immigrants right my father uh was a pow survivor uh came to america when he was 12 my mother came to america when she married my father from israel uh but she was born in baghdad and so it, it had a very international kind of upbringing 
And my father, when he was a taxi driver, would come home with these stories of the women he met in his car, his cab, sorry. Gloria Steinem was one of them. He also drove around um, the Kennedys, Jackie Onassis and, and her daughter. And, and he, I and mean, they would take yellow cabs. New Yorkers. And uh, he would tell me stories. And he said, you know, Mars, uh, also he didn't say the R's because we're from Queens, Mass. He'd say, you know, there's this thing called feminism. Again, we didn't know. This is the 70s, and we didn't have, we had newspapers. That's all we had, and, and Walter Cronkite. And he explained that what that meant was that I could grow up if I wanted to and work in an office if I wanted to. And because my father was a taxi driver, the aspiration was working in an office, blue collar to white collar. That was the aspiration. And so he imbued in me a work ethic very early on in my life. And I, I knew I was different in that way because, uh, you know, my friends weren't thinking about that. And then when I got into middle school and discovered like Richard Pryor and George Carlin and disco music <laughs> and all of this stuff, I started to see like Helen Reddy and Olivia Newton-John and like these other icons, Patti Smith, these other icons of badassery or kind of, you know, saying things like, I am woman, hear me strong. And those kind of things start to fuel my thinking. Um, reading Judy Bloom as a, you know, a, a middle schooler. Uh, my mother didn't have that language, but my father did. So that's when stuff starts to percolate. Obviously, by the time I got to high school, uh, I was in yeshiva, which, you know, in very segregated community, uh, although it wasn't just all white. It was, it was, it was, a uh, it was a diverse culture. We had, you know, brown kids and, and black kids who were, you know, Jews. Uh, I knew then I was a feminist. I knew then that like, <laughs> When Meatloaf was saying, like, I bet I knew that there was something wrong with that music. <laughs> like, I knew that uh, I was into The Clash and, like, Susie and the Banshees and all this stuff by then, by high school. Um, music is a really great source of feminist thinking, and I think that really influenced me as well. What are your top three songs? Well, you know, embarrassingly, <laughs> my favorite band is not a female band. It's Pavement. Um, but I think, too, like, now when I talk about like and the wedding present and you know um when I talk about what my favorite bands are it really is kind of enveloped in a nostalgia like I love the 90s so much again my daughter would roll her eyes to hear me say that but like the 90s to me was like a pinnacle of my life like I just such a great time music was so like the flourishing of music you know from uh Britney Spears to um, Wu-Tang, you know, to like Bikini Kill, like just all this beautiful music, just like you just couldn't stop everywhere you looked, like there'd be some other thing, you know, dropping. Um, and of course, like I'd go see bands every day, Beasties and all this stuff. Fugazi. Um, so like when you talk about my top three songs, it always goes down to the band because like I can listen to a pavement record and just be like, every song here is perfect or Radiohead record and know that every song is perfect i i love um bikini kill like i every then you know every song has that like that like fuck you energy that i just means so much to me so yeah so it, it just like it, go, yeah. it moves around yeah, i hear you sister <laughs> <laughs> but uh you know now that you know we are here and uh, we have things to do uh what is it that you feel uh, is left to do, which you really want to do. And, you know, what are the five things you've learned from a life so impactful, which make your work so unique and so possible that it's now available for, as you said, you know, intergenerationally, it's relevant still. So what is it that you can take five lessons from your past life to use in the coming life? Uh, the first lesson is uh, to just be hopeful and be positive. So that's one. Be hopeful and be positive. Uh, you get caught up in, Ugh, that can't happen. No, that, then change can't happen. So you, the first lesson is to be hopeful and be positive because 
that fuels the energy of change. And that leads into the second lesson is that change is always present. It's, it's a constant. Um, and you have to work towards it. It's not, I can't lose weight just because I want to lose weight. I have to work at it. Change will only happen if I work at it. Uh, what's going on in, in a political landscape it's going to happen unless I do something in terms of change. So the third lesson is, well, how do you get change and how do you stay hopeful and how do you stay positive? You have to be active. And, and that uh, can mean anything from writing a check to marching to running for office to continuing to climb a corporate ladder. So these are like three or four ver very valuable lessons that I've had in my life, like just keep to keep the bowl, sorry, ball rolling. Um, it's easy to just sit on your couch and go, oh God, can you believe this is happening? It's harder to do something about it. And so it's always like, which is the fifth lesson? Uh, even though it's hard, it doesn't mean you can't do it. You can't work for it. You can't think about it. You can't uh, write about it. You can't talk about it. What's hard is, is what makes everything possible and hopeful. So it just all kind of ladders and then re-ladders. It's like a, a Morbius <laughs> thing. Uh, so those are kind of the, the basic, the, the five. You know, right now uh, it feels like a very tough time because democracy in most countries is under threat. And, uh, you know, we are fighting for our bodies as well as our countries and our freedoms, right? So... At this moment, what does the future of freedom look like to you? The future of freedom, you know, I sometimes people ask me, like, what is a what's a cause? You know, and I'm always like, there are so many causes or so many areas of freedom that you as a person, however you identify, non-binary, whatever, that you can put your energy, your thought, your money into. There's domestic violence, there's transgender rights, there's Planned Parenthood, there's so many different things. Choose one, and that's what freedom is. Just focus on one thing, um, because if you can focus on one thing, you can affect change. If you're just like, there's this, squirrel, let me follow this. You know, if you're just chasing all these very important things to the rights of women and humanity, you can, your focus can get diluted. It's mm. so good. If you just put your mind to one thing, can you imagine what you can do? Imagine. That's freedom. Yeah. When did you know you had a free voice and uh, how, did, you know, how, you obviously have a free voice and you've been using it to make a difference in the lives of others and help them find free voices. When did you even know you have a free voice? You know, I it was from my dad uh, because I was sent to yeshiva in middle school. And, you know, when you go to uh, institutions that, you know, teach an academic, uh, a secular curriculum, but also teach a religious curriculum, you're taught to live in the paradigm of, of that religiosity. I guess that's the word, I don't know. You can be spiritual, but, you know, being religious requires a lot of uh, structure and limitations and no freedom. And I knew when I was in yeshiva that I did not want that as my destiny. I did not want to wear a shade till. I didn't, I didn't mind. Like, I love that my mother still lights Shabbat candles. I, I think it's a beautiful tradition. But I did not like, um, I did not respond to the limitations imposed on women who are observant in my religion. Uh, I did not, uh, even, even to the extent of how you have sex with men or pleasure, any of that stuff, I knew that wasn't for me. Um, and I was so lucky that I had a parent, one of my parents, my father, who was very much like, you're only going to school because your mom wants you to go here, but like you can be whatever the fuck you want to be. Just you know, do that. I was lucky that I had that support because, um, you know, it meant a lot. It meant that I had the freedom to really like dream 
And how do you pass that idea of the free voice to your daughter? So, you know, I think you showing children or people that you're raising what freedom looks like, a lot of that requires you to live that example. So my kid, you know, from a very early age, knew that girls and boys were of equal value. She knew that men are important in the conversation because she had very strong men in her life. Uh, but she also had a head of household who was a woman, a head of household who was her mom, <laughs> and uh, somebody who uh, like lived to a very specific beat of her own drum. And she, she saw that and she saw that how that, how that is such a free model of life, of livelihood. Yeah. And so, uh, it was never even a question of hers in her mind to just not be a feminist. I mean, it just made sense. We are of equal value. Couldn't full stop. Done. Like Gandhi, be the change you want to see. So be free yourself. And that's how your daughter will know. That's wonderful. And that's Marcel Karp, author of Getting Over Max Cooper. I know the conversation is so rich that you want to hear more. And maybe you can reach out to her via her Instagram or Twitter handle. She will answer your questions. Go look for her new book, Getting Over Max Cooper. And let's bust some glass ceilings together. Oh, thank you, Richira. Thank you. I'm Ruchira Gupta, and thank you for listening to A Free Voice. Subscribe to our podcast to get notifications of new episodes or check us out at ruchiragupta.com. The podcast is produced by Ram Devineni with Ratapalix and Bauri Poetry. Special thanks to Leela Kapoor and Anika Kothari. This podcast series is funded by the Citizen Diplomacy Action Fund, which is sponsored by the U.S. Department of State and implemented by Global Ties U.S. in partnership with the Office of Alumni Affairs and the Bureau of Educational and Cultural Affairs. Additional support from New York State Council on the Arts, Governor of New York State and the New York State Legislature.